Coming at you from the We Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 60 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton, and I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook, Jeremy Paxton, and Dolores Lozano had the week off. And I am actually coming to you on September 11th from Rio de Janeiro, uh, here for the Paralympic Games. And uh, Kevin, this morning I actually was able to witness uh, Melissa Stockwell, who was the uh, first woman to lose a limb in combat in the Iraq War, win the bronze medal in the triathlon. It was just a a very emotional experience, uh, especially that it happened on September 11th. We're actually going to uh, dive into that a little bit more here in a few minutes. Uh, We have an interview with Chris Purcell, who was a White House staffer on 9-11. We also have great interviews with Rob Sellers of Scout.com, kind of discussing the U of H Cougs and the Texas a and Aggies, what we can expect from those two teams heading into the bulk of the season. Also, we have a, a great interview with Zach Bolin, who is the lead singer of Citizens and Saints, who uh, they're actually dropping their third studio album on Friday. And it's called A Mirror Dimly. You can find that on iTunes. But Kevin, I'm about 5,000 miles away from you. We are doing this podcast on Skype. How are things back in Texas? Things back in Texas are great. It's uh, it's football everywhere all the time here. Um, I will mention self-servingly, I got involved with another podcast. I'm cheating on you guys with the VW Cast. That's a uh, high school football podcast that I do with Zach Babb over at Varsity Wire. So shout out to that. If you like 176A football, uh, you should definitely give it a listen. If not, you still should because I'm entertaining as I always am. And that's sort of what I bring to the table. But, uh, but yeah, I've been doing lots and lots of high school football this week. A little bit of college football. It's been exhausting. I'm talking like five Five games in six days. It's uh, it's been quite a whirlwind, but uh, I would imagine that you're just as busy and just as tired over there in Rio. Well, sleep is not an option here in Rio, but it's been absolutely fascinating just being here with uh, all the different families, all the different athletes. But uh, I definitely miss watching college football, watching the NFL. Texans kicked off their season. Uh, this afternoon with a victory over the Chicago Bears, but uh, Brian Cushing out six weeks with a uh, MCL sprain. So uh, some things just don't change, but uh, definitely looking forward to getting back to the We Dessert studio next week and recording in person. Yeah, could not be less surprised about the Brian Cushing thing. Did you see Osweiler's line from the game? I did not. Go ahead and inform me. 22 of 35 with an interception for 231 yards, and you can compare that to Cutler, who was 16 of 29 with an interception for 216 yards. So uh, mixed reviews on Osweiler so far. I will say that from watching the contest, uh, he did look um, like a guy who hadn't had a lot of NFL starts, maybe a little bit timid, kind of staring down his reads a bit. Uh, I'm hoping there's some room for improvement there, but he did get the win, which, as you said a moment ago, off air is the important thing. But uh, but I so I'm not over the moon about Osweiler so far. But I'm hoping he does grow up a little bit. Uh, he certainly did enough to get the win today. Will Fuller though probably stole the show in most people's eyes. Yeah, I'm actually glad that I have Will Fuller on my fantasy team. I've been keeping track <laughs> with him, and uh, not a bad rookie debut for the uh, wide receiver out of Notre Dame. But uh, with Brock Osweiler, I mean, you mentioned you hit you hit it right on the head. He doesn't have that many games under his belt. He only started seven games with the Denver Broncos last year. And, and, you know, this is something that we've talked about on the podcast uh, multiple times, whether or not that 17 million a year contract is worth it for Brock Osweiler. But 
if he wins games, that's all that counts. Yeah, that's what he's competing against. It's really not just, is he good enough to win a game for you here or there? It's, is he worth all that money they're paying? And so uh, through a very limited sample size, I would say he did not play like a $17 million quarterback, but there is time for the season to progress and grow. And, you know, he does have a very stout defense, particularly in the second half of that Bears game. They proved that they are uh, the defense a lot of people hoped they would be. So he's got all of the weapons on the offense you could possibly hope for, a very stout defense backing him up. So there is no reason that he should fail this season unless it is, you know, uh, just a lack of talent. Uh, I don't think it's a lack of drive. I mean, certainly all the reports are great. He's a leader in the locker room. You know, he has the confidence in these guys. So everything's set up for him to succeed, and I'm certainly hoping as a Houston Texans fan that he does. And on the defensive side of the ball, J.J. Watt getting the start, uh, coming back from injury. Whitney Merciless looking good again. Uh, J.D. Clowney also looked impressive. So I I think the Texans' defense played well overall, and they will play the uh, Kansas City Chiefs next week here at NRG Stadium in Houston, and that will be, uh, you know, a game that the Texans kind of need to win, especially after dropping two games to the Chiefs last year. But uh, kind of switching gears here to talk college football for just a moment. Uh, your U of H Cougs absolutely dominate Lamar. My Baylor Bears struggle a bit, but managed to get a 40-13 to win over the SMU Mustangs. And uh, the, to me, the big story of the college football weekend was the ending to the Oklahoma State-Central Michigan game. Did you see that? I did not see that. Lighten me. Because keep in mind that when all these games are going on, I am literally at work at most high school games, tweeting out stats, you know, doing uh, breakdowns, interviewing players and coaches, things like that. So I I usually have to catch up after the fact that I'm not fully caught up yet. All right. So we'll go ahead and set the scene here for just a moment for those of you that did not see the game. But uh, Oklahoma State, four seconds left to go in the game, uh, had it all lined up. And uh, there was actually, I believe, an intentional grounding call. And keep in mind, I'm following on Twitter, so I don't actually get to see this happen. But uh, there was an intentional grounding call. And so... uh, the game should have been over and nothing you know should have happened but uh, because there was a penalty uh, that allowed like I, I guess a turnover of downs and uh, Central Michigan had one final untimed down with zero seconds left on the clock and they connect on a Hail Mary and uh, Cent- oh that's what I was <laughs> yeah. seeing on Twitter so Central Michigan wins the game and uh, afterwards all the officials said yeah we made a mistake but there's nothing they can do about it once the game is final it's final Oklahoma State is now one and one. Wow, that is a brutal way to lose it. I I, I wish I had read more about the Oklahoma State reaction to it because I would imagine that uh, those fans are livid. I think that's an understatement. Uh, Mike Gundy is not happy right now. And uh, if you're Oklahoma State, that's a huge black eye. I mean, when you play a team like Central Michigan, you know, not quite a powerhouse, and you play them at home, Boone Pickens Stadium, which is a an amazing venue for college football. You have to come away with a win, and uh, you know their schedule is not going to get any easier. They actually uh, play my Baylor Bears here in just about two weeks down at McLean Stadium. So uh, Oklahoma State, uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the Big Twelve. But uh, right now. Is it weird to say that the University of Texas looks like the class of the Big Twelve? They they do. Let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back for a second there. If you're upset about that call, I understand that. But there's no reason Central Michigan should have been in position to win that game in the first place. So Oklahoma State has no one to blame but themselves for being in that position for letting that be such a close game that one bad officiating call can make the difference there. So I have some perspective. If you're an Oklahoma State fan, that uh, you know that's a bad call. It's a it's a it's a bad result, but uh, it's your fault for being there. As far as Texas, yeah, Texas 
it's just shocking. You know, I've spent I've heard nothing but bad things about Charlie Strong's teams for the past couple of years. It's weird to see them successful with all the hype, and it's also amazing from a media standpoint to see how quickly the hype has come back with uh, some early success, but again, a very limited sample size, and yet the Texas bandwagon already seems to be full again. Yeah, they are currently ranked number 11, and they have a big game coming up against Cal. I'm just going to go on the record and say that uh, the Longhorns lose to Cal. Uh, you know, I think that they were playing a, an undermanned uh, Notre Dame team that was not anticipating the spread attack that the Longhorns ran, and I, I just think it's asinine for them to go from unranked to top 15 with a win over Notre Dame. That, to me, is just buying into the hype that Charlie Strong has figured it out, and I don't think that you can make a snap judgment off of one game when you have a two-year track record of mediocrity to look at. So, uh, it, to me, it's just, I'm dumbfounded by it, but I, I do think that maybe he does have them going in the right direction, but only time will officially tell. But, uh, Kevin, kind of switching gears here for a moment, I'm down here in Rio de Janeiro, and you know what I don't have? Uh, you don't have um, good internet. That is actually true. I have terrible internet. But another thing that I don't have <laughs> is we desserts. And that, to me, is heartbreaking. Oh, yeah, of course not. Yeah, no, we desserts in Rio. They have not expanded there yet. I think it's on the to-do list, but uh, right now they're just based here in Houston, of course. 3411 Kirby. Uh, I would like to give a shout-out to a listener who dropped in this week and, and made a big purchase, but he didn't leave his name, so he'll just be an unnamed listener who was at the uh, U of H game and went by We Desserts. So if you are a U of H fan and you're out at U of H uh, for the games this season, We Desserts is just like a stone's throw away. 3411 Kirby, uh, you should go check it out. You get a 10% discount for being one of our listeners. They do anything and everything that delights your palate. That's their new slogan that I just made up on the spot here. But we're going to get some business cards printed up. Uh, so in any case, yeah, be a good listener. We like the listeners that take our advice and go to We Desserts, O-U-Y Desserts, uh, at 3411 Kirby and uh, get something either before or after the contest. Yeah, absolutely. I will be stopping by We Desserts next Saturday when I arrive back in Houston. Uh, you know, unfortunately, I land at 5 a.m. I don't think they're open that early, uh, but I will definitely go there Saturday afternoon. But in, in addition to We Desserts, we want to make sure that you follow us on our social media platforms. You can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also follow our website at weeklybrewcast.com. As mentioned at the top of the show, we have three great guests lined up for today's show. We've got Rob Sellers from Scout.com. He's going to break down the U of H Cougars and the Texas A&M Fighting Aggies. Also, we've got Chris Purcell, who was a White House staffer for six years during the George W. Bush administration, was actually uh, in the Oval Office on September 11th, and he's going to uh, join us here in a few moments to uh, recount his story of the you know the events as they transpired on 9-11. Also, we've got a great interview with lead singer of Citizens and Saints, Zach Boland, uh, and Citizens and Saints actually released their third studio album, Amir Dimly, this Friday, and you can find that on iTunes. But Kevin, we have a packed show on deck, so it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. So as we are recording this podcast, it's actually the 15-year anniversary of September 11th. And uh, all week, Kevin and myself have been discussing a potential guest on the show and, you know, kind of somebody that was there on September 11th uh, with the Bush administration, what that was like. And we actually found someone, and that is Chris Purcell, who wrote an an opinion piece for Independent Journal Review this past week and uh, discussed his experience as a White House staffer uh, during the Bush administration on September 11th. And uh, Chris, first off, thanks for joining us this week on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And can you take us through the events of that day from what transpired as the first planes flew into the tower leading up to President Bush's address from the Oval Office? Sure. Well, um, uh, so I was uh, I, I was pretty new to the White House 
then. I had uh, started in March, and of course the whole administration had just started in January. And um, you know, as, as most people who talk about 9/11 say, well, you know, it started off as a normal day. And and you know, for me, my, my roommate and I, who we, we both had the, the same position in the communications office, um, we got into the office actually a little bit late. Um, you know, just because it, it it didn't seem like a all that important to us to, to get there super early that day because the president was out of town and, um, you know, it was just a regular day. And um, uh, by the time we got there, um, there was already just the beginning of, uh, of the news coverage on TV when, uh, you know, of course, at that time, they people thought it was, you know, it was a small commuter plane and, you know, may have accidentally hit the, hit the tower. Um, and one of our uh, one of our more senior colleagues from the media affairs office had come in and and, uh, and said to our, our boss Scott that you know the, the you know we don't know what this is but you know the president's probably going to have to speak to the country about it and that was the first time anything like that had crossed my mind you know thinking well you know we've got some sort of accident and, and uh, we don't really know what's going on but um, you know oh if, if you know my office was responsible for um, you know, basically everything that the president did in terms of television and, and production. So if, if he was going to have to address the country, then, um, then that was what we were going to have to work on setting up. Um, so while my boss went, went down to, to, uh, to figure out what we needed to do um, and, you know, what might be the timing and, you know, would the president be heading back to Washington, um, that was when, uh, you know, we, we saw the second plane hit, and then obviously, you know, everyone knew right away. Then, then that was uh, that was an act of terrorism. You were there. Obviously, it's it's an event that touched everyone in America, but of course, the White House has to respond to it, and, and all the people there are involved in some way. What was the the mood or attitude like with the people there uh, with you after that second tower was hit, and you realized, oh my gosh, this really is an attack on this country? Um, well, you know, we we weren't there for very long, really. Um, uh, so I, I went down to uh, to the White House mess because that's where kind of the West Wing staff had kind of gathered up, um, and you know people were kind of kind of, kind of trying to figure out oh what do we need to do, and uh, Secret Service all just kind of wanted us in one in one place. Um, a lot of people from from my building, there's an adjacent building called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Uh, most of those folks were starting to to leave, um, but since I was expecting, well, we're going to have to, you know, set up a, you know, a TV address, and I, I'm going to go over to where the West Wing staff was, and um, while while our bosses kind of figured out what to do, and we weren't in there for very long at all before um, before we got evacuated out. Uh, somebody from Secret Service came down, said everybody out, um, and so we went out to the to the driveway that goes between the, the Eisenhower building and, um, and the, the West wing. And we could see smoke, but it looked like it was coming from, you know, the, the mall area. And that's, that's of course smoke from, from the Pentagon. Uh, we just didn't, we just didn't know what it was. And, um, uniform secret service, you know, yelled at us run. Um, and so we were all directed to run out the North gate and uh and through lafayette park um but once we kind of got a couple blocks away from lafayette park you know we didn't really know what to do know where to go 
um, you know, we had we had cell phones then, but cell coverage was saturated, and then we had pagers. And so my boss Scott um, and both of my roommates, the the one that I, I that worked in the communications office with me, and another one from the press office, um, we were all together, and we just kind of didn't really know what to do. So we went over to the Mayflower Hotel um, to try and watch things on TV and just kind of wait to hear uh, what we were supposed to do. So, Chris, you were 22 years old, uh, you know, fresh out of college when the 9-11 attacks happened. Uh, When you accepted that job at the White House, I mean, you obviously thought that you were going to have a remarkable experience, gain a lot of uh, knowledge from just working with uh, some of the nation's best. But uh, did you ever envision uh, being thrown into the fire with this sort of event and uh, attack happening on the country? No, no, of course not. So, I mean, you know, and I hadn't I hadn't even graduated from college yet. When I when I first came up to to DC, I'd I'd been on on the 2000 campaign, um, and um, you know of course our focus um, as an administration was primarily on on domestic issues, um, you know education reform and and tax cuts and and that sort of thing, um, and so I, I I I had never left the country at all before I before I came up to Washington, so. So my knowledge of, of you know foreign events and things was was pretty limited. So, so your story is actually up on the Independent Journal Review, which is I read through it, and I certainly was very uh, interested in, in hearing your perspective and so forth. And you mentioned uh, kind of a, a difference that you noticed in the president, sort of pre nine uh, eleven attacks and afterwards, sort of a difference in his demeanor or, or what you perceived as his resolution. How would you describe the change that took place in the president uh, when you saw him after those attacks had occurred? Um, you know, doing the doing television work for the president I, I was fortunate even though I had a very low ranking position when I started um, you know I was fortunate to be able to, to see the president and um, you know kind of just be around when we'd have big events big speeches but you often just get to see how he how he handled different things and um, um, you know interacted with folks behind the scenes and you know he he's always been and, and he's he still is now and he still was for for most of his presidency you know he he was always pretty pretty playful pretty lighthearted with folks and so when he came back into the oval office we were um we were in the in, in there setting up the uh, the tv address and trying to get everything ready for him uh, to speak at I think he spoke around eight thirty, and he just had he just had a, a an almost cold look in his eyes he when he came back in it was all serious all business um and you know for those who had been around him that was just kind of a a stark difference from any other time we'd seen him and um i just i just really remember that that determined resolute look in his eyes the whole time that um that we that we saw him that evening so I'm curious. One thing we've talked a lot about on this show is the upcoming election and the uh, electoral process we're sort of going through right now, you know, with Trump and, and Hillary and so forth. And I'm, I'm wondering, those lessons of 9-11, I think, still are valuable today. And from your perspective as a guy who's kind of on the ground there watching these workings, what did you learn about the way the world is from that? And how does that apply uh, to the current electoral cycle that we're in right now? Well, I mean, it makes me really, really concerned for, for the country for the next you know, four or eight years that we have, um, that we have 
the two main candidates who are who are really unfit to handle the presidency um, for different reasons. Um, but it's, it's it's pretty concerning. Um, um, you know, you, you just don't know what to expect when you get in. Certainly, President Bush never expected um, to be a war president. He never expected, um, you know, for the world to really change out from under us uh, while he was in office. And so you don't know what's going to happen. And so, you know, when you're choosing a president, it's really important to think about, you know, will this person be able to handle the unexpected and how will they handle it? Um, and so it's pretty concerning that you have um, two candidates who don't really seem up to the task. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. It's uh, to me as a, as a Republican, it's a little bit frightening to have uh, two candidates that I don't like. And uh, as a, someone that uh, you know sees what's going on right now with uh, ISIS, you know the crisis in the Middle East. It's going to be interesting uh, to see how the next president uh, shapes their foreign policy but uh, we definitely appreciate you uh, taking the time out and joining us on the weekly brew podcast this week and again for those that are interested you can check out chris's story on the independent journal review uh, for an opinion piece titled i was a white house staffer on 9 11 and uh, chris you're currently a communications consultant and for those that are interested in uh, kind of following what you do or potentially uh, kind of hearing a little bit more about your story what is the best way for them to connect with you on social media Sure. Um, you know, if they if they want to check me out on Twitter, I'm at, at, at p u r c e l l k r i s, um, and you know, happy to uh, you know interact with folks on uh, Twitter or any other kind of social media. Well, Chris, we definitely appreciate it, and uh, thank you for sharing your story. It was uh, it was pretty nice to hear. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew podcast is Rob Sellers, who is a publisher for the Scout Network. We're big fans of Scout here. We do a lot of posting on those boards and so forth, interacting with the communities. And he uh, deals primarily with the Aggies and the Cougars, and we're here to talk about both today. Rob, how are you doing? You're doing good, Kevin. How about yourself? You know, I'm doing really well, particularly following that U of H victory. I was there. I believe you were there as well. The atmosphere was tremendous. It was a terrific performance. And I thought that the uh, the Cougars absolutely manhandled uh, OU. So we're, we're a week after the fact here. Obviously, we're recording this a little early in the week. The listeners will hear it uh, a week from today, next Monday. But I think that there were a lot of lessons learned in that game that, uh, that are valuable to assessing the team long term. So, I mean, let's just talk about what stood out to you. I know you awarded some game balls in an article you wrote for Scout. Who really stood out to you last week, and who do you think is going to make a huge impact going forward this season? I think as far as heading into the game, some of the question marks that they had or you know, that, that we would have covering the team uh, going into it, obviously the secondary, you wanted to know how they were going to respond uh, with all the, the, the new faces back there and all the, the losses they had to graduation in the back end of the of the defense. So that was a big question mark for me coming in, which I felt like they, they definitely checked the box on that. Uh, most impressive, I think, was the physicality specifically the safety brought and even I want to say I remember Jeremy Winchester getting in there and getting popped too so I mean definitely there's big plays to sit out Matthew Adams had the big the big hit early on Baker Mayfield talked some about that uh, this morning in the press conference just being that he felt the play before Joe Mixon's long uh, catch that set them up to get them down there uh, was kind of on him he felt it was on him so he felt he needed to make a play and of course it played out where Baker Mayfield and him crossed paths in the next play and he he proceeded to put him into the ground so I think that was one of those deals. The, the big hits early kind of set the tone for the for the for the game on defense. I think Oklahoma kind of realized, hey, these guys are here to play in case they didn't ahead of time. But also Houston gave them a little bit of a, 
confidence that they belonged on the field. Not that they probably doubted, but, you know, once you get in there and get playing and you feel like, hey, all right, we can play with these guys, we can beat them. So I feel like secondary was, was a box they had that they definitely checked off. They got good play for them. Running backs, I think Duke Catalan obviously came in and had a tremendous day. He had a lot of carries, you know, not not necessarily the best run game that they would hope to have. Obviously, there's things to improve on. But, again, going against Oklahoma, a team that some people didn't expect them to be in a game with, uh, I thought he had a lot of yards and had some key carries and some big carries when they needed it just to keep that, that offense balanced out. So, I, mean, I think one on either side of the ball there, those are two big questions that they answered, still having to look a little bit for that backup running back spot. But that, that'll come as the season progresses and they find out who's, you know, who's going to step up and take those carries to, to spell them some down the stretch. So one thing I find myself wondering, and of course we're recording this again before the AP poll comes out, actually before the entire week's slate of games have been even played. This is Monday morning. But uh, but I wonder where is U of H going to end up in that poll, and, and where do you think they deserve to end up after beating the number three ranked OU team and looking as good as they did and as effective as they did, really kind of manhandling through most of the game there. Where, where would you place them if you were the Associated Press right now? Deserving-wise, they probably they, they deserve to be up there into the top five. Uh, I think they do. I think they've proven. Not only did they beat it, uh, the third-ranked team in the country, I thought they did it very handily. I thought uh, with them going into the end zone late in the game, looking to go up 40-17 to 17 at that point, had that not – that you know, obviously it happens. The fumble happened, and Oklahoma was able to score and kind of – make it a little bit closer at the end than what it appeared to be on the field. But they had they gone up 40-13 to 13 at that point, and even if Oklahoma would have had another score, I still think that that, I mean, that was a dominant performance over a solid Oklahoma team that was well-respected coming in. So top five for me I think is what they deserve, what they'll end up. I think they will be top ten, maybe six, seven type thing. They may not quite get as high as what, what maybe I would give them, but uh, I can understand that a little bit. And, and like like's been mentioned already, you get ready for the rest of the season. You know, people are going to bring up strength of schedule now. They, you know, they're going to bring that up. Uh, everyone's going to start pointing to the Louisville game way late in the season. And there's a lot of football between now and then. So, I think for Houston specifically, landing in that top ten range as long as they get there, you know, six, seven, eight, anywhere in there, that's a great spot for them right now. They, they're, they're not going to lose a lot of games. I think moving forward, obviously you got to play them all, and they all, you know, you never know what's going to happen. But on paper. They're going to be all right moving forward for a few weeks, and they're going to hold up into that top ten, and maybe even depending on what happens around them, start inching their way up a little further up the list. So, One can only hope. So I know it's not a story that you wrote necessarily, but I have seen you retweeting a story about recruit reactions to the big U of H victory. And I just want to kind of talk about the recruiting for a moment. I know that's something that Scott particularly likes to dive into. Uh, if I were a recruit, uh, particularly like a top-shelf sort of recruit within the city of Houston, maybe I'm biased. I'm a U of H alum, but I can't imagine I'd want to go anywhere else seeing what Tom Herman has done with this program, the way they're playing for each other, playing hard, beating top programs like Florida State and OU. What, what is your sense of how big that win was in terms of maybe being the deciding factor for a kid who might have gone somewhere else that's in the city of Houston? I think, uh, especially with, with myself covering, I've covered, you know, not only the Cougars, but they're recruiting since you know, 2000, the end of the year 2008, start of the year 2009. So seeing the transformation in the level of recruits that they have the ability to even get into the picture with these days compared to back then is, is very noticeable to begin with. But Everything they've done around the school with the improvement in facilities, everything geared, obviously Tom, Tom Herman coming. Uh, I don't think even Houston fans knew what they were getting in Tom Herman when, when he arrived. They knew he, he had a good resume and he was a hot coach. 
Uh, and, and of course, everyone hoped for great things, but I don't think even anyone could have predicted it, it would have turned out so well so quickly for them. But it's true. They're right there in the mix. Uh, they, they they should have the attention of, and they do have the attention of a lot of players in the city of Houston, obviously, and Ed Oliver coming in as a true freshman and doing what he did in the first game against a big, big team in Oklahoma. That, that only strengthens what they have to sell to these local products. A, if you're good enough and you're the best player at your position, you will get on the field. And B, Stay home and do it in front of your fans and your family and your coaches and your teammates and and do it in front of all the love of the people you've grown up with. So it's a, like you said, a very strong pitch and it's tough to imagine people uh, recruits these days and they will still to, to turn their eye away from that. And I think it's becoming harder and harder for recruits to turn their back on that while there's other recruiting entities out there still selling, you know, uh, the lack of a power conference, which could come to change uh, in the short term anyway, depending on how all that plays out with the Big 12. So I think really the last biggest step for Houston to absolutely have control of just about anybody they want, at least getting into the picture with those recruits, is the is the conference. And if they check that box off, as a lot of people predict, there's a good chance they will. If there is, in fact, expansion, then I think that absolutely puts them on even ground with anybody in the country and be able to keep these kids home to play for them here at Houston. Well, you mentioned Ed Oliver, who was a kid that I watched at Westfield, obviously very impressive. And he went from being a, a top-shelf recruit to being a big-time player uh, in that game. He had seven tackles, two sacks, uh, declined to talk to the media, politely, respectfully declined an opportunity to speak to the media, which I was curious about. What did you make of that, and what does it say about this program and about him as a player? Very impressed with him. I mean, Ed Oliver, uh, he going, – going back to last spring, you know, obviously he'd already signed in February – he was at every practice in spring ball. He was there standing with the D-line. Obviously, he couldn't participate. He wasn't actually part of the program yet. But he was there watching. He watched their drills. He watched mentally reps with every single rep. And so I think that they'd offer him that and his work ethic and just his freakish skill set, if there's not a better term to use there. I think it just helped him out to be ready for that moment that the Oklahoma game, all of his training and everything, you know, I know it feels like you're starting to get redundant with saying that the more that the – the program puts that, that, you know, our training led to this. But I really felt like they did the best job possible pre- preparing him to be ready to go in a spot they really needed to, to be honest. They, they've got some great defensive linemen, but adding Ed to that mix allows you in certain situations to turn him loose more, and it also adds just another uh, quality player, obviously, uh, in the rotation up there to keep that defensive line fresh. For those games, you play the big offensive linemen from, a, from another school like, like they did against Oklahoma. So, I think that he has done a tremendous job. I was very impressed with him uh, politely declining and specifically saying I'm, I'm declining to talk because I don't feel like I've earned it. I think that's a little bit of truth there, but also, you know, he's a freshman. He may He's never been a big fan of the media, so he may not quite feel like he's ready, and that's fine too. But there is some genu- uh, genuineness when he says that hey, I don't feel like I've earned it. You get that from him being around him. So a lot of credit to him and Tom Herman even gave him some more praise in the press conference when asked specifically about him. Uh, declining the media, saying he hadn't earned it. And Tom said, you know, that's, I was proud, a proud coach. You know, I feel like that's a very mature thing for him to do. So uh, stick around and watch him for a few years, Cooper fans. I think you're going get to get a lot of pleasure out of seeing him play for the next few years. 
No kidding. That impresses me too because uh, there's no more dangerous place in the world than between me and a live microphone. So I just I can't relate to that, and I, I praise the kid for that kind of an attitude. But uh, so it was a historically bad opening weekend for ranked teams in college football, and I think that U of H fans are looking forward, uh, maybe hoping that Oklahoma beats Ohio State. You know, hoping that Louisville is undefeated and so forth. A lot of things you know that still need to happen with this season. But how much does that bad opening weekend for ranked teams bolster U of H's bid uh, to the college football playoffs? I think it does a lot, and that Houston's already probably going to be the the media darling, so to speak, of the of the the team that everyone wants to hold on to early. To who's going to crash the playoffs this year? Who's that outside team that's going to make a run and make make this decision hard for the playoffs? Everyone's secretly hoping for for these systems that are in place to be destroyed by a team. So obviously, Houston was already already going to be a media darling nationally and obviously locally they've, they've had a ton of support and it continues to grow as well even seeing all the people that turned out uh, for press conference this morning but I, I think that that just only gives uh, the national media more ammunition to continue what they're doing to grab Houston and push them and push them and push them seeing Houston even you know it, it's just odd after covering Houston this long but seeing them over the weekend as some of these projections have started, started to come out obviously way too early playoff projections but seeing Houston's name matched up in the semis with Alabama is just it's odd. I know it's it's something that I'm sure Houston fans are just thrilled about. It's just it, it feels almost surreal a little bit that they've come that far so quickly and they're legitimately in that discussion. So I think it's great that they had such a a dominant performance against a very well respected team. One of those that they'll say some some will say uh, was part of that record breaking underperformance in the first weekend. But in the long term, Oklahoma is going to help you out. Like you said, you, you, you become the biggest Oklahoma fan moving forward. Hope they beat Ohio State and continue to dominate uh, and maybe even go on and win the Big 12, which just puts another feather in Houston's cap. So uh, I think it, it, they're in a good spot, and I think they're going to continue to see the attention they're getting grow exponentially throughout this week. Uh, then, then following this week, they're going to have the road game, the ESPN night game at Cincinnati. So, I mean, it's in the short term, it's going to continue to grow, and it's, it's, it'll be fun to see just how big it gets depending on the performances they continue to put out there. And, and as they continue to climb the rankings and Greg Ward continues to, to start getting more and more uh, Heisman looks and, and talk about the Heisman. So it'll be fun. So you speak about the Big 12 there, and I'm curious, there's kind of two schools of thought here. One is that the U of H bolstered its case to be a Big 12 member with a big win here, showing that they can play competitive football against probably anybody in the country. Another school of thought is that U of H is scaring off the OUs and the Oklahoma States, you know, who are afraid that they're not going to be able to recruit the Houston and the Texan, uh, Texas area as well. Uh, wh- what do you think? It just you know, play mind reader for me here with, with Bulls being all the Big 12 coaches and administrators. Was that a good thing that they did beating OU as soundly as they did, or was that ultimately going to hurt their case? No, that's a good point. It's been brought up before to me since the game. And, I, and I, it, my way I basically fell on it is that, that basically I don't feel Houston could have done much to help themselves, per se, and what their resume has. And when you look at the boxes, the resume uh, that Houston has as far as facilities and what they've done on the field, you know, everything, they, they check pretty much all the boxes there. Of all the programs being considered for this, I think it's arguable that Houston checks the most boxes, if not all the boxes. But I don't think they could have done much to help themselves, although I do want to give them credit and feel like they did help themselves by just being so dominant over a well-respected Oklahoma team. But I think they could have done more to help hurt themselves 
like with a poor turnout or getting blown off the field uh, by Oklahoma, you know, people giving them, giving them the ammo they're looking for to say that Houston doesn't belong. I think there's a lot of people, detractors that are out there and, and I would welcome. And I said this last night on another show, I would welcome anyone that would love to sit down and just discuss, you know, unbiasedly, but just discuss better uh, qualified candidates for big 12 expansion right now. I'd love to hear what they would say who they would say qualifies better for Houston at the moment, if you take out all the political stuff and all the other stuff going on. Now, does it hurt them, I think, with the Northern schools? I think it just strengthens the fact that the Northern schools don't want them there because not only have they just come in now and shown they can hang with some of the top teams in the country the last two games in Florida State and mainly with Big 12's Oklahoma, uh, Big 12's Darling in Oklahoma this week, uh, I think that they're continuing to move forward recruiting, and this is only going to do more to help them, which is probably the biggest beef with Oklahoma State and our state, is they traditionally are those schools that get what's left over after A&M in Texas uh, and maybe even Baylor in the past has picked through some stuff. And you know, those guys get in there and fight for those sex guys. So into these kids, look, come to our school. We're still going to be back playing in Texas every year. We're in the Big 12. You're going to be home a lot. Well, Houston kind of comes in in that scenario and takes that spot of any school and potentially, obviously, it puts them head-to-head and competing for recruits like Ed Oliver and recruits like that. Okay, LeVon Chasen, who they're chasing this year, uh, for, uh, fighting Oklahoma, basically, with a uh, defensive end from North Shore is very well thought of. Houston would, would, would fit into that and basically steal a thunder, which is their biggest complaint, I get that. So I don't know that they could have done much to help or hurt themselves in that. Their position is not going to change. But ultimately, we'll see how much their position carries as far as when when it's time to vote and the the bigger schools are kind of, you know, throwing their weight around and trying to get the right votes behind the right team. So despite, I think, maybe giving them more ammo to not want them in the Big 12, I think in the end it's not going to matter if they still expand. So I think a question on a lot of people's minds, a question uh, I mentioned last week on the show, my mom texted me after the game. She's very, uh, she's very negative. She said, uh, oh, great, you know, now, now Tom Herman's going to leave us. And I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not convinced. Uh, I've gotten in some hot water with U of H fans kind of openly discussing this before with uh, other guests. But Join the boat. Uh, right, right. I mean, it is a fair question, I think. Uh, he's, he's, you know, quote, unquote, the hottest name in, in college coaching right now, and deservedly so. I mean, I, who would not want that guy? Make the case for me this way, so I so I retain my U of H fans. What in what circumstance does Herman stay long term? What's it going to take to keep this guy? Basically, I think getting into the Big Twelve is the biggest thing right now that can absolutely lock Tom Herman down long term. Not only does that give him the uh, the contractual bonus, uh, the five million dollar bonus that's been brought up lately that, that's in place if they do get into a Power Five conference while he is the head coach, but it also would then uh, bump his salary, I'm sure, as well and provides that extra money. It seems almost like Houston right now has been, been playing out in front of themselves a bit and gambling with the house's money. You know, kind of really – they're extended a lot with all these facilities and all that. And the fact that, that uh, Tillman Fertitta was able to step up himself and help with the with the Tom Herman situation as much as he's become involved. Uh, I think getting to the Big 12 is really the last hurdle in being able to lock up Tom Herman long-term and keep the other schools from coming to post. That's the only thing that someone else could sell to him right now that he would get by going to another school versus being here. And and to me, once they can get that part situated, which unfortunately they're at the point now, after their presentation next week to the Big 12, it's out of their hands. And and there's a potential still, obviously, that they don't expand and they get left out through no fault of their own. But to me, 
the Big 12 is the big thing right now, or, or whatever Power Five conference it ends up. And now with 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 the craziness of realignment, you never know what's going to pop up out of out of the blue a month, month and a half ago. We never would have thought the Big 12 was fixing to be expanding. So, to me, they get into a power conference, and, and, and even that playing field money wise, I think that it's fine. And I think he realizes, and, and the more. I've been around him the more it appears that I think he really honestly would sit down here long term and see what he could build. Obviously he's gonna have a couple, two or three dream jobs in his mind that that any coach would leave for, and that's pretty much any situation unless you're coaching an online or school. And so that's you know, to me that's that really is the last hurdle, just this figuring out this conference situation in order to be able to compete money wise to keep him happy. Well, we certainly hope that they're able to do that. I, I myself would love to see Tom Herman here long term, and I love what he's doing with that program. But let's let's switch gears. So I'm not an Aggie. Uh, I've never been necessarily an Aggie fan, but this is a Houston podcast, and there's a large A&M fan component here in Houston, and uh, we certainly like to talk Aggies when when there's something worthwhile. And there was uh, this weekend, uh, big game against UCLA. They ended up pulling out. Um, the the moment that struck me uh, afterwards was Josh Rosen kind of trash talking, you know, saying after uh, 50,000 people, it all sounds the same. Uh, tries to pump up the crowd and then throws a huge interception. I mean, how much uh, umbrage did the Aggie fans take to that sort of talk before the game, and how, how was that response? That uh, that moment there, and obviously everyone's seen it a million times on Twitter, as it's been uh, put out there with him trying to wave the crowd up and then proceeding to throw the interception. But that moment there, I think for sure, obviously, we were just speaking about this year, this morning as well. I think that this year's team is going to be a change for Kevin Sumlin and anything that anyone's seen from him before as a head coach and that it's going to be more of a defensive-led team with the offense trying to score enough points to you know, to, to, to win the games for them, but it's going to be a defensive-first type team. And they've got the guys back there. I think they're going to be a pretty good defensive team. Obviously, they're still trying to figure out some uh, answers at quarterback long-term. Trevor Knight's the Band-Aid for this year, and we'll see. He needs to operate well within the system to basically not lose them games more and just simply be a facilitator, they're not going to lean on him to try to go out and win those games for him. I don't think he has that in him from a skill set standpoint. But the leadership they get from him in that position versus what they've received from that position, obviously, in the last few years with freshmen out there uh, is, is night and day. And that's going to be a big thing for him, just being a little better prepared when they're out on the field. So we'll see. It should be an interesting year for Kevin Sullivan. I still think he needs to uh, – he obviously needs to have a solid year. Uh, I think he's got to get up into the 8-9 win range for sure including some meaningful late-season games. You know, they need to be in the at least in the hunt late for him to maybe cool that seat off a little bit. So, uh, interesting, after seeing the first game, I think their defense is going to be, be the side of the ball that carries them more than offense, which is something that's, that's not ever been the same for that for Kevin Sumlin's teams even going back to here at Houston. Well, you talk about the defense and defensive end Miles Garrett has been getting a lot of uh, a lot of ink, a lot of press lately. I think I've seen him compared to Khalil Mack of the Oakland Raiders and a number of other NFL type players. He's a guy that's projected to be uh, a top tier NFL draft pick uh, next year. How big a factor is he going to continue to be for the Aggies this year? And uh, and where do you project him all uh, uh, long term in terms of an NFL draft prospect? Uh, I think it's arguable he he might end up being the top pick next year in the draft, depending obviously how the teams shake out that are picking up there. You know, let's see who, who has what needs at the top of the draft. But I, I don't think I would be surprised to see him be the first player taken off the board. Uh, just from seeing him so much in games and practicing this and that the last couple of years, he really is just something else. I mean, it, it's odd seeing his body type and it's so long and wiry. He still looks like he could add a lot of weight to his body and be all right. But yet he's, he, he's lightning quick. He's got that 
that odd freakish ability to bend in weird ways coming off the edge that, that not many people have. And so uh, I think he proved even this week too. I mean, he was back there early in Austin trying to, you know, disrupt Josh Rosen and the Bruins. And I think you're going to see that more for the rest of the year. The, the big thing people are going to be watching as they even glance forward past this year, like you mentioned, the draft is, did he improve himself some more in the run defense? That was never like a glaring weakness for him, but, of his skill set, that was probably what he needed to improve the most on to be a, a better, well-rounded player at the NFL level. So uh, interesting to watch as the season goes on. Does he show better run support than he has in years past uh, to go along with that? Just uh, almost impossible to stop pass rush. So with Kyler Murray and Kyle Allen transferring, departing, I think Sumlin was considered by uh, by more than a few pundits to be on the hot seat. But again, Trevor Knight played well against a great UCLL team. Uh, 22-42, I think was his uh, ultimate completion rate there for 239 yards, one touchdown, one interception. Uh, is he the answer? And and then kind of as a part B there, what's your projection long-term for the Kevin Sumlin outlook uh, in College Station? Uh, like I said, I, I would still go back and say probably this year is going to depend a lot. I mean, they're you know, UCLA was a game that they need to win when you look at their schedule. If they're trying to get to that 8-9 mark or whatever, plus maybe a potential bowl win, uh, I think you, you have to have that UCLA win. You know, you get Prairie View this week, that's an easy slowdown for them, and they're, you know, they're expected to win that one clearly. But then it kicks up a bit for A&M, obviously, playing that SEC West that, you know, A&M is very proud to be in the SEC, but it comes along with one heck of a schedule. So, you know, after that, they'll be at Auburn. They'll have the Arkansas game in Dallas again. Alabama's waiting. Tennessee comes to town this year for the first time to play A&M in College Station, uh, at least in the, in the short term since they joined the SEC. So I, I don't know. Long term, it really kind of hinges on the season. I think if he makes it through the season and they're successful and, and he sticks around, I think it'll be another couple of years type thing. I don't know that there will be extensions involved, but I think that if he gets through this year and stays, it, it's this is a hurdle type thing, and then we'll, we'll see how it plays out moving forward. He'll have to continue to show that continued uh, improvement on the team and eventually being in a conference like that with as much money as they've spent with facilities, and you're going to expect him to get in there and hunt for some titles in the in the next couple of years or so. So they're going to have to continue to try to fight, but it, it's one of those things I think it's kind of unknown until you see how this season plays out. I don't know if I'd be shocked if they had a poor season or if they fell apart like they have in years past, especially from internally. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked to see Kevin Sullivan out there next year, but I think it's He's got some things around him. He's got the people around him I think he's kind of wanted. He, uh, Nolan was only him go back a long time. I think they work well together. And if they can, you know, get some momentum going and stay healthy, I think they they can get up there in that 8-9 range and, and save him, well, uh, you know, moving forward, keep his job. So potentially positive outlooks for uh, for two programs hoping to keep head coaches, maybe. Well, Rob, it has been an absolute delight. Uh, I know you do a lot of great work for Scout, and we'd like to point the listeners towards that. Uh, if they want to contact you, uh, follow you on social media, or follow your work, how is the best way for them to do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Rob underscore Sellers underscore. Uh, and obviously, like I said, the site, Cougar Digest, or, uh, the Houston site on the Scout Network, and Aggie Digest on the on the Aggie Dow for the same scout network. So, uh, yeah, definitely. Anybody want to stop by and check it out, uh, please do. <laughs> well, we certainly recommend it. Thanks so much, Rob.
You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Zach Bolin, who is the lead singer and guitarist of the Seattle-based band Citizens and Saints. And Zach, thanks for joining us this week on the podcast. And this Friday, your third album, Amir Dimly, drops on iTunes. How exciting is that? And what type of work went into producing and recording? Yeah, man, we're super excited about this record because, I mean, for us, it everything about it, you know, it meant so much for us to be able to you know, all of us collaborate and contribute um, to the process of it. And so, you know, it kind of helps when one of the guys in the band, you know, he's produced a couple of other records. And so, you know, it's nice to have somebody with that type of experience, but also all of us as songwriters just coming together and making something that we really felt talked about, something that was a little bit more, more real and honest than probably what most things that come out of the genre that we're part of typically uh, contribute. And kind of speaking of the genre, I would say that you guys have a, a pretty unique sound. I've been able to uh, listen to the album, uh, the preview edition on, on SoundCloud, and uh, you kind of have like an indie vibe, Americana vibe. And are, are there any specific bands or artists that kind of influence your sound? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it goes back as far as um, just a lot of like more classic rock type stuff, which I think is why the Americana film pops through, you know, uh, like any any bands from like Fleetwood Mac to David Bowie to... Um, you know, even newer stuff, like we really, uh, one of our favorite records, at least for three of us in the band, is this record by the Cardigans called Long Gone Before Daylight. And so I think that all of us just in particular just really appreciate music that's made uh, as a band as opposed to just one or two people in in a studio and then bringing in a bunch of studio musicians. Like we want it to, we want it to be a creative process, which is why we track the whole thing together live um, so that, you know, you kind of even take the little mistakes and stuff in there. It just gives it a little bit more character. How rewarding is it to know that, you know, everyone in the band does have kind of a hand in what the final sound is going to be like? Kind of like you mentioned, it's not just one or two people, it's everyone collaborating. Does that make it more rewarding and more special? Absolutely. I mean, because it, it gives every person ownership. You know, I think if you're just coming in you know, being treated as a studio musician, you don't really have much of an emotional connection to it. But when you know that this is a song that you're helping to create, it's the same thing. You know, you go and you build a house and uh, it's one thing to have someone build it for you. It's another thing to be the person that was, you know, digging out the foundation and and nailing in the the two by fours and then dealing with all the mistakes and problems (laughs) that you made along the way. You know, it's like, that's the beauty of creating and it's also just that much more complicated, but that much more rewarding when it's done right. together with other people. Uh, the new album, Mirror Dimly, comes out on iTunes this Friday. And uh, there are three songs that kind of stick out for me, uh, Faith, Day by Day, and Kids. I uh, definitely like they all have uh, unique sounds and, uh, you know, the message is, is very strong in all three of them. But uh, was there one track in particular that, I don't know, is kind of your baby, you know, uh, that, that means a little bit more than maybe another one? Yeah, I mean... I think madness in particular sticks out to me because just dealing, just wrestling through a lot of different stuff. I mean, I had a friend of mine whose daughter was diagnosed with um, an inoperable brain tumor. And uh, man, that just like really hit home. I've got a couple kids and um, it was also just pretty heavy to just watch them kind of suffer through all that. You know, my friend, he was telling me one day, he's like, you know, it's one thing to, it's one thing to see, to know your kid has cancer, it's another thing to watch them suffer. And uh, that really just like wrecked me <laughs> and messed with me for a while. And so I I think th- just that song was a really hard song for me to write. 
but also one that I think um, just kind of was just an honest processing through just living in a world where, you know, we just know people that are young, that are old, that are dying, that are sick, that are hurting, that are, you know, just broken, all these different things. And it's, you know, you just can't ignore that. Like nobody just, you can be indifferent to it. You can numb yourself to it. You can be desensitized to it because of a bunch of media. But in the end, there's eventually something that hits home. And I think that was the thing for me. That's definitely um, an emotional story there. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious with one of the things that we ask a lot of the bands that we interview is when it comes to your name, uh, where did you get that from? We've heard so many different interesting stories. We heard uh, one band tell us that they went to a, uh, a horse, like, I guess, horse name website and, you know, kind of searched there and found a cool one and then decided that was going to be their band name. But Citizens and Saints, you guys are out of Seattle. Uh, you, you definitely have a, uh, you know, an influence with Mars Hill. What is the the backstory behind citizens and saints yeah i mean we definitely didn't get our our name from a horse uh <laughs> we got our name from uh <laughs> from the bible actually um <clears throat> for us we we started as a band actually at a church and it's 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 morphed in a lot of ways um out of out of that so now we're not we you know we're not really focused focusing on the same things anymore but um but the band for sure was started because of uh you know, influenced by that. So, I mean, for us too, like, we really like the idea of, I think, and this is the case for most musicians and artists, like there's something really special when you know you've made something that is honest and a fair and a clear representation of something that you believe. Um, and then people enjoy that. Uh, it's just such a rewarding thing. And so for us, that name was really more about this participatory process of, hey, you know, people enjoying this music and it's just so fun when you're playing a show and people want to sing along and and I you know my favorite shows to go to are the ones where I'm not just sitting there but <laughs> the band is almost expecting you to kind of you know be a part of performing these songs with them and uh, that's that's kind of where you know that name really really meant something to us in that way because we thought that what we were making you know we hoped would add value to people's lives and um and that's you know for us like that's what the gospel is and so that's why we 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 wanted that that name to be there yeah absolutely you want them to be immersed in the sound immersed in the message and uh, i guess my last question for you would be coming out of mars hill church is, is that kind of unique i mean you typically you always hear these stories from bands you know they were always childhood friends but i i mean you guys you know worship together you you had this band and now you're essentially taking it to the next level does that kind of add a little bit more value and meaning to you oh yeah i mean to, especially considering that Mars Hill was, uh, you know, we went, we, you know, my family moved there. I, I worked there for a few years and, you know, we formed so many great relationships, but then all of a sudden it's like, you know, the church just starts to go through a ton of turmoil and you're just like, whoa, this is not what I expected. And so I think now to see that, so, you know, you pull back the curtain and you see there's good, but there's also a lot of bad. And for this band to still be going out of that, to me, just really says a lot about just our commitment to each other, the friendship that we have, but also I think just the honesty that we valued from the beginning, that people around the world listening to our music, they appreciated. And I think we just want to keep honoring, uh, we want to honor God in that, but we also want to honor people that listen to us because we know that there's not, uh, not everyone's going to agree with everything that we say or everything that we write, or they're not going to love everything we do. But at the very least, like we we for sure want to be uh, true to who we are, and I think at the very least, people can appreciate 
some genuineness, especially coming out of all the Mars Hill stuff, where that was it was the opposite of that. I mean, it seemed like the biggest uh, criticism that exists there was that whoa, this has all been seems kind of almost like a lie or we've been told something something else and i don't think that was just seattle i think there was a lot of people throughout the world just feeling like whoa i did not did not see that coming right. and we just uh value uh integrity and just wanting to be true to who we are and and you know the good the bad and the ugly i think that speaks a lot more to people than just a, a bunch of cliche uh, it's great to see that you guys are uh you know a success and doing a good job and uh definitely anticipating uh highly anticipating the third album which is going to drop this friday it's called amir dimly and uh, zach we appreciate you joining us this week on the weekly brew podcast and for those that are interested in uh whether it's streaming the the album buying the album uh, what is the best way for them to find it and also what is the best way for them to follow the band on social media yeah uh go to spotify um or apple music to stream it you can also go to um any digital outlet and to, to purchase it as well uh go to our website citizensandsaints.com backslash uh, merch and you can or store i'm sorry backslash store and you can buy uh, vinyl you can buy cassettes we went we went that route this time as well uh cds whatever you like and uh, that's also a great way to just kind of follow what's going on and you can follow us on twitter instagram facebook um by uh, by searching searching our names uh, citizens underscore saints I'm, I'm a little disappointed you didn't have an eight track in there but uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we should have next yeah, time but... thank you for the for the the, the tip on that we'll do it next <laughs> time for sure <laughs> I, I that would have been a nice touch but uh zach we definitely appreciate it and uh congratulations on the new album thank you so much i really appreciate it closing time we just had three great interviews on episode 60 of the weekly brew podcast and uh, thanks again to chris purcell rob sellers and zach Boleyn for joining us on the podcast this week and uh, kevin uh, we're recording this on september 11th and both you and i were freshmen in high school uh, when it happened and uh, you know kind of reflecting 15 years later what are your thoughts overall when reflecting 15 years later well you know i'm i'm kind of a bad liberal i think in the sense that i've always had a soft spot in my heart for george w bush um again was very young but i always liked him he always seemed sort of uh avuncular and probably not fit to be president i think uh history would bear that out but um but not necessarily the sort of monster that i perceived dick cheney to be and so it was always kind of he was a sympathetic figure to be put into a situation that was over anyone's head honestly it's a very difficult situation to handle and it was interesting to get uh, purcell's perspective on being there and sort of seeing uh him change from a, a childlike figure almost a, a joyful figure into a very resolute one um and and ultimately a very warlike one of course but uh so an interesting perspective sort of look at things from the other side obviously i uh you know i vote democratic i am democratic in philosophy and belief and so forth but um you know the republicans were in power when that happened and there were a lot of consequences for that and i think it's interesting to view the current uh, election through that lens and uh, and he had some really valuable insight and then as for rob sellers i love rob sellers uh followed his stuff for a long time i'm very active on the cougar digest board um they don't all love me there after last week after having sean pendergast on we were boycotted by a number of u of h fans uh, who were not thrilled that we had that interview. So this is sort of a makeup call for you guys that are hopefully back listening to us now that we don't have a 610 guest on. And uh, and Rob Sellers was great as always. And, and it's really encouraging stuff about whether or not the Cougs will be able to keep Tom Herman. And uh, he certainly thinks they will. And, and he's got me fired up about that. Yeah, that was a great interview with uh, Sellers there. I, I listened to it. And if you're a Cougar fan, you're absolutely going to love it. But I'm going to jump back to George W. Bush for a second. Uh, you know, September 11th, one of the most memorable moments that I have from 9-11 is probably a few weeks after September 11th, uh, when 
George W. Bush threw out the first pitch uh, in the World Series, and uh, I believe it was Game 3 of the World Series at Yankee Stadium, and uh, there was actually an ESPN 30 for 30 documentary on that. It's entitled First Pitch, but uh, to me, just looking at you know the security that went on uh, at that stadium and just talking with people that were actually there at Yankee Stadium, to me, that that's remarkably fascinating. And, you know, I, I've actually... Um, I'm here in Rio de Janeiro right now, and one of the uh, individuals that is with us on the trip was actually with George W. Bush when he was in Florida, uh, when he was first informed of the uh, the attacks in New York and Washington, D.C., and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, just hearing his perspective is, uh, you know, quite fascinating. He's also a listener of the Weekly Brew podcast. But, uh, you know, 15 years later, it's it's quite emotional just to think back on it. And, uh, you know, watching Melissa Stockwell, uh, who is a, a U.S. Army veteran who uh, lost her leg in combat, uh, you know, win a bronze medal during the, the triathlon uh, here at the Paralympics on 9-11. It's just, uh, it's kind of a remarkable thing. But, Thanks again to Zach Boleyn, the lead singer of Citizens and Saints, for joining us. Their third studio album, Amir Dimly, drops on iTunes this Friday. I had the chance to preview it. I think our listeners are absolutely going to enjoy it. So we appreciate Zach for coming on. And uh, Kevin, I'm just going to toss it back to you. I know that you're actually a fan of that ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, First Pitch. And I know you're not a huge fan of politics. But when you see the two mix, politics and sports, what are your thoughts? Well, you say I'm not a huge fan of politics. I'm not a huge fan of your politics. You know, I'm I'm uh, I am in my own way. I think very patriotic and very interested in bettering this country, and that's what's important. I think that this being 9/11, um, it's a good opportunity for people of all stripes and colors, uh, philosophically, to sort of look inward and look outward and say what is uh, right with this country, what is wrong with this country, and to and to take some sort of a stand. This is a great opportunity to reflect on that. And so you look at like we've talked before about the uh, John Carlos salute at the Olympics, the uh, the black black power raised fist and how I I find that to be a patriotic gesture. I think that is, um, you know, a message that needs to be delivered. Colin Kaepernick's been in the news a lot. There have been some players that have been uh, sitting or kneeling during the national anthem as um, trying to raise awareness about some of the problems in this country. I think that's patriotism as well. So I would encourage everyone, uh, this being the week of 9-11, sort of as you're listening to this, to maybe reflect on, um, you know, what is your relationship to your country and what is your country's relationship to you and what can you do to be uh, vocal about change and to make things better? So there's a lot of forms that can take. I know Jeremy Paxton would absolutely ream me for siding with Colin Kaepernick on this. But um, but I think that dissent can be patriotic, can be helpful. I think it's important. So I would encourage everyone just to take a stand for something this week or this month as you reflect back on um, on the way we were attacked and, uh, and what the fallout from that is. Yeah, obviously my political beliefs differ from yours as well, but uh, I, I, I do agree with your sentiment. I think that everyone should be aware of the issues that affect our country and you know they should be politically active and trying to make this country a better place and i think there's a lot of room for cooperation and on a day like september 11th uh, the entire country rallied together and uh, you know to me that was absolutely remarkable and i wish that we could do that around issues uh, that are important to our society right now rather than you know having to rally around when a terrorist attack happens in the country i, I think we should be able to do that 365 days a year rather than just on a day of tragedy. And, and to me, that's a little frustrating. But uh, you know what also is frustrating is the fact that we have had zero iTunes reviews in what, a month? 
Let's not compare the frustration of not being reviewed on iTunes to the frustration of not having a country that lives up to our ideals. But yes, they are both frustrating occurrences, no doubt about it. And uh, and it's sort of, I, I guess it puts it in perspective for me. I'm not going to bemoan too much the fact that people haven't left an iTunes review. We have 58, which is pretty terrific, but uh, we'd like more. So if you appreciate what we do, uh, and frankly, even if you don't, it still helps us, go to iTunes, uh, leave us a review. It's uh, pretty simple to do that. Just search for the podcast and look for uh, the tab that says reviews. Click on it and click five stars and tell us what you enjoy about the show and also give us some suggestions about what you'd like to see on it or what you'd like to hear about. We've had somebody say soccer before and lo and behold, we brought on Jeremy Branham and did uh, 90 seconds of Dynamo Talk, which is uh, (laughs) well more than we ever intended to. So we do take those suggestions seriously. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, Leave us an iTunes review and uh, more importantly, um, find some way to honor your country. And to be perfectly fair, your very first episode on the podcast, we discussed FIFA. So we did, we've discussed soccer twice. That's that's fair. I'd actually forgotten about that. Well, uh, we've had a fun episode, and uh, if you want to continue to follow us, uh, and you know, throughout the week, we encourage you to follow us on social media. Just search a Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. In addition to the show pages, we also encourage you to follow our individual Twitter accounts. You can search for me at a Staten. You can also search for Kevin and follow him at K Michael Cook. Uh, and then additionally, check out our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post great content there each week, and it's pushed straight to your inbox every time that we publish a new podcast episode. But uh, we had a great episode. Again, this has been episode 60 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. Thanks again to Rob Sellers, Chris Purcell, and Zach Bolin for joining us on the show. And for my co-host, Kevin Cook, I'm Austin Statton. I'll see you next week. And guys, remember, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do this week, never forget. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 